0: Well, happy Father's Day to all of my brothers out there and pray the Lord will give you a great day. You have a vital ministry and uh, pray the Lord will help all of us who are blessed to be dads, to be faithful, uh, to be examples of Christ and of the gospel. So men, happy Father's Day, may the Lord bless you. I wanna invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 we're gonna be in verses 24 through 29, and last week we began a what will be a three-part mini-series on this passage, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and I've entitled this little mini-series, What to Do About Doubt. What to do about doubt. So today will be the second part of that message. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29 records Jesus' appearance to one of the 12, to Thomas. And in John 20, verse 24, we read that Thomas had a nickname. His nickname was Didymus, which means the twin. So that's what he was called by his friends, was Didymus. But he's known in church history, actually, by another nickname, which starts with D, and that is the Doubter, Doubting Thomas, or Thomas the Doubter. Thomas was the classic skeptic. Even when all the other disciples had already believed, Thomas either could not or would not believe. And so for 2,000 years, we've referred to him as doubting Thomas. And last week, I said that doubt is both the reason why the unsaved won't believe and why the saved sometimes fear they don't believe. It's something which is a secret source of sorrow and suffering and shame for believers, and it is a major barrier to belief for many unbelievers. And since doubt is so common and so destructive, we're spending several weeks studying John 24 through 29 in order to learn what to do about doubt. What should we do about doubt? I want you to read with me John 20, 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. In this passage, we see three important things. We see what doubt does, what Jesus does, and what faith does. And last week, we talked about what doubt does. And we saw in verses 24 through 25 that doubt does three things. First of all, doubt distances. Doubt distances. Thomas abandoned the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was absent at the cross, and verse 24 tells us that he was also absent on that first Sunday gathering of the disciples. Doubt distances. It distances you from God. It distances you from God's people, and it distances you from God's Word. And the farther you are from God and His people and His Word the more you will doubt, the farther you are from the answers, and so the more you will doubt. And so doubt creates this vicious downward cycle. The more you doubt, the more you distance yourself. The more you distance yourself, the more you're going to doubt. So we learned last week that the first step out of this downward spiral is to do what Thomas did, to do what Thomas did on the second Sunday after the resurrection. Despite all of his doubts, he chose to be there. He chose to show up. He chose to gather when the other disciples gathered, not to withdraw, not to walk away, not to stay away. He came to that second gathering. He was absent on the first gathering, but he was present on the second one, and that made all the difference. Doubt distances. And so, the first step to overcoming doubt is to draw near. James four eight says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Doubt distances. And so, the first step to overcoming it is to draw near. Next, we saw that doubt, distrust. At the beginning of verse 25, we saw that the other disciples were repeatedly telling Thomas, Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he wouldn't believe them. And it didn't matter how many credible eyewitnesses there were, no matter how many times they told him, he said, I will not believe. And that is because doubt distrusts. But as we saw last week, doubt distrusts very, very selectively. Thomas' words in verse 25 demonstrates distrust in the competency, the credibility, the honesty, or even the sanity of his own best friends, of Mary, of the two disciples who talked to Christ on the road to Emmaus, and all the others who were there on that first Sunday when Christ appeared. He distrusted them, but while he distrusted others, he had supreme confidence in himself. He selectively distrusted, distrusting others, trusting in himself. In verse 25, he says, "...unless I see and I put my finger in my hand, I will not believe." They were saying, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We've seen his, He showed us his hands and his side. We've seen these things. No, 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 unless I see them, I will not believe." Doubt, distrust, and distrust everyone except for yourself. And that is, of course, a form of pride. So the second step to overcoming doubt is to humble yourself. Returning again to James chapter 4, we read that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, the final thing we saw about doubt last week was that doubt demands. In verse 25, we saw that Thomas says he will not believe unless a certain condition is met. And he decided the condition. Doubt makes demands. Doubt often demands that God prove himself to you. The creator has to prove himself to the creation doubt demands that God prove himself by doing a miracle of some sign. Even though Christ has said that it is wicked and adulterous to demand a sign, doubt proceeds and demands it. Or sometimes doubt demands a particular form of proof, perhaps some very specific form of proof related to your vocation or your education, a particular form of proof. But what's interesting is you're demanding your proof or your desired proof while rejecting the proof that God has offered. Doubt can demand a particular form of proof which God has not promised to provide, and doubt rejects all the proofs which God has provided. You're a little bit like a lawyer who, when certain evidence is not part of the trial, demands that it be and won't proceed unless it is so. But God is not the one on trial, he's the judge, and he determines how to reveal himself to his creation. He's not a circus performer, he's not your personal genie, he doesn't do tricks on cue, just to satisfy the demands made to the creator by creatures made from dust. It's not how it works, you're out of place. So the third step to overcoming doubt is to stop making demands which are disrespectful of God's majesty and which disregard the ways which He has chosen to reveal Himself to those who search for Him with all their heart. In James 4, again, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. You need to submit to Him, not make demands of Him. So last week, in summary, we saw three things that doubt does. Doubt distances, doubt distrust, and doubt demands. That's what doubt does. Now it's time this week to turn our attention to what Jesus does. And I said at the end of last week that when doubt meets the deliverer, the deliverer wins. So I want you to look with me at verses 26 through 27 where we'll see what Jesus does what Jesus does. So look at verses 26 through 27. It says, After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet Believed. So we see here in these verses what Jesus does. We saw in verses 24 and 25 what doubt does. Now let's look at what Jesus does. In these verses, we're going to see that Jesus does three things which changes Thomas' life forever. And the first thing that Jesus does is he comes. He comes to that second Sunday gathering. If you remember in James 4, 8, we read, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And Thomas's life is a great example of that promise. Instead of allowing his doubt to continue to distance him, to continue to keep him away from the gathering of the disciples, he made a wise decision. He made a wise decision to go to that second Sunday gathering, to be there. He drew near to God, and now God draws near to him. Verse 26 says that the disciples were again inside on that second sunday and thomas was with them he drew near so jesus draws near to him it says jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said peace be with you jesus graciously appears again he had appeared on the first sunday and all of the disciples were there except for thomas Jesus graciously comes now the second Sunday and again says, peace be with you. You know, it's interesting, it says that the doors were shut, and this is the second time it's mentioned. Both times as they gathered, they had the doors shut and locked because they were being hunted by the same folks who had killed Christ, and so they were huddled inside behind closed doors, and those closed doors aren't a barrier for Christ. He comes and he stands in their midst, and No barrier can keep the shepherd from his sheep, no physical barrier like these shut doors can keep him from his people, right? In countries where there's persecution, there are no bars, there are no chains, there is no uh, camps or gulags by which those who oppose Christ can keep him from his people. He is with them, he stands in their midst and he declares to them, peace be with you. So no physical barrier can stop him. No spiritual barrier can stop him. No spiritual barrier like Thomas's doubt. There is nothing, no power, no spiritual power which can keep Christ away from his own. So Jesus comes and his presence changes everything for Thomas. When doubt encounters divinity, divinity wins. When skepticism meets the Savior, the Savior triumphs. I want you to notice at the end of verse 26, the key words which Jesus speaks. He speaks now a third time the same phrase and the same blessing he had given when he appeared the week before. He says, peace be with you. So Jesus not only came, he also spoke words of comfort. And I believe those words had to be very, very precious to Thomas. Don't forget that Thomas already knew what Jesus had taught about the consequences of unbelief. He knew that the consequences of unbelief is judgment. Look back to John chapter three, verse 18, to see what the Lord had taught about the consequences of unbelief, and Thomas certainly would have known this. Jesus says in John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief brings judgment, and Thomas knew that. So when Thomas saw Jesus, he had to be, at least for a moment, absolutely terrified. Terrified that Jesus would now judge him and reject him because of his unbelief. He had been saying for a week, I won't believe. And now comes the one who had said that those who do not believe are judged already. And so it was kind and gracious and merciful of the Lord to immediately say, peace be with you, to speak words of comfort to Thomas who had every reason to be terrified by the presence of the Lord and not comforted. And the Lord graciously extends mercy and grace to him. By the way, those words, peace be unto you, are words which still ring out through the pages of Scripture to hearts that are troubled. If you're like Thomas and you struggle with doubt, I want you to hear those words of Christ, peace be unto you. The peace of Christ extended to you with an open hand, a hand of grace, a hand of love, a hand of mercy. And so like Thomas, I exhort you to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We see that in the life of Thomas and you will see it in your life as well. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And when he draws near, he will first of all bring words of comfort. But the fact that he begins by bringing words of comfort doesn't mean that Jesus turns a blind eye to sin. He certainly did not turn a blind eye to Thomas's sin because the second thing that Jesus does is that Jesus confronts. He confronts Thomas. First he comes and then he confronts. Immediately after speaking the phrase, peace be with you to all of the disciples, Jesus turns and speaks directly to Thomas and says, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and don't be unbelieving but believing. You know, I used to think that Jesus' invitation in his words here in verse 27 was him acquiescing to Thomas's demands, right? Thomas had demanded, I'm not gonna believe unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints and put my my hand, hand into the wound in his side. Unless I can do that, I won't believe. And so Jesus comes and says, Thomas, put your finger in my hands and your hand in my side. And I used to think that here Jesus was simply acquiescing to Thomas's demands and giving him the proof that he demanded. But as I studied this passage in greater depth, I realized that Jesus is actually confronting Thomas with a key truth. He's confronting Thomas with a key truth. And it was the sudden realization of that key truth which causes Thomas to immediately cry out, my Lord and my God. So what was the truth that Jesus confronts Thomas with? He's confronting Thomas over a misunderstanding that Thomas had about who Jesus really was. Thomas didn't have any doubt, couldn't have had any doubt, that Jesus was a miracle worker. He had seen it over and over again. He had eaten the bread and the fish that the Lord had created when he fed the 5,000. He had gathered up the 12 pieces. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So now he sees Jesus raised to life. What could his conclusion have been? Well, he'd seen another man raised to life. He'd seen Lazarus raised to life. Jesus had prayed, and Lazarus had been raised to life. So perhaps he thought that God had raised Jesus, a rabbi, back to life, the way he had raised Lazarus, a disciple, back to life. Seeing Jesus wouldn't by itself have convinced Thomas that Jesus is both Lord and God. He had already seen someone who was not God raised from the dead. So what was the truth which Jesus confronts Thomas with that instantly convinces Thomas that Jesus is God, that he is Lord and he is God? And the answer to that question lies back in verse 25 in the context In verse 25, it says, the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, here's the key. When Thomas says this, when he says what he says, recorded in verse 25, Jesus was not there. He was not physically present when Thomas said this to the other disciples. Yet, when Jesus appears, passing through locked doors, he looks at Thomas and repeats to Thomas exactly what Thomas had said when he wasn't there. I think the realization had to hit Thomas like a flash of lightning through his soul. Jesus knew what he had said when Jesus wasn't there. Thomas knew that Jesus was not physically present when he said those things, and yet here Jesus is saying them to his face word for word. And the conclusion had to be inescapable. Jesus heard me say those things when he wasn't there. Who can do that? There is only one. There's only one being who hears what is said when they are not present. Only one being knows all that is thought, said, and done by everyone everywhere at all times, and that is God himself. So when Thomas realizes that Jesus had heard what he said when Jesus wasn't physically there, the conclusion was instantaneous, my Lord and my God He realized the only way Jesus could have known what he had said was if he was omnipresent and omniscient. In other words, if he is God. And so that's what he confesses. You know, I can't help but wonder whether a few minutes later, perhaps days later, even years later, if there was ever a time when Nathaniel, one of the other disciples, elbowed Thomas and said, Thomas, I told you so. This is what I've been telling you for three years. Now, you may wonder why I reference Nathanael. Well, turn to John chapter one, verses 47 through 51, which is a remarkable parallel passage to John chapter 20. I think Nathanael, at some point, probably elbowed Thomas and said, I told you so. Jesus knows what we say and what we do even when he's not there. And I've been telling you this, Thomas, for three years. Look at John chapter 1 beginning in verse 47. This is the calling of Nathanael. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. By the way, do you notice the parallels in the responses? Nathaniel says, you're the son of God and the king of Israel. And Thomas later will say, my Lord and my God. Jesus answered Nathanael and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathanael and Thomas now have something in common. They both realized that Jesus saw them and heard them when he was not physically present. And they both understood that that can only be the case if he is who he had always been saying he was, which is God in the flesh. Now, Nathaniel comes to that conclusion back in John chapter 1. Thomas doesn't come to that conclusion until John chapter 20. Nathaniel was someone in whom Jesus said "There's no deceit," while Thomas was someone who was filled with doubt, and so Nathaniel was one of the first to believe, and Thomas was the last. But both the one who believed early and the one who believed late, both confessed the same twin truths that Christ is Lord and he is God. He is, as Nathanael says, the son of God, the king of Israel, and as Thomas says, my Lord and my God. One believes from the very beginning, The other doesn't believe until the very end, but they both confess the central truths of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and that he is God, and they both confess that after realizing that Jesus sees them, he hears them when he is not physically present. I don't know whether you're more like Nathaniel or more like Thomas, but the Lord hears you, the Lord sees you, he knows your thoughts. As the psalmist says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know my thoughts from afar. This is the attributes of deity which Christ manifests both to Nathaniel and to Thomas. So whether you're like Nathaniel and you believe the first time you heard the gospel or you're like Thomas and you're still struggling to believe after years of hearing, I want to encourage you to believe in the one who knows your thoughts, who knows your words, who has not missed a thing that you've said, thought, or done. And that is both comforting knowing that you're known and it is frightening knowing that you're known by the Holy One. The first lesson that Jesus teaches Doubting Thomas is by confronting him with his own words, he teaches them, Thomas, I'm there when you think I'm not and I know what's in your heart, what comes out of your lips. I know what you do. Hendrickson commenting on verse 27 writes, for each demand of Thomas, there is a command of Christ. Christ comes and he responds to Thomas's demands with commands. He puts Thomas in his place. Thomas, the creation, is making demands of the creator. The creator now comes and starts giving commands to the creation. Thomas, put your hands in my nail prints, your hand in my side. And don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer, Thomas. Jesus meets his demands with divine commands. DA Carson writes, quote, "By taking up Thomas's challenge in this way, Jesus simultaneously proves that he hears his disciples even when he is not physically present. And by doing so, he removes all possible grounds for unbelief, even the most unreasonable ones. When doubt demands, Jesus commands." And the demands of doubt crumble when confronted by the sovereign commands of Christ. Christ comes to Thomas and he now confronts Thomas. And then that brings us to the third thing Jesus does, which is that he calls to Thomas. He calls Thomas. At the end of verse 27, Jesus calls out to Thomas to repent of his unbelief and to believe. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And I want to point out to you a few things about Jesus' call and then Thomas' response. First, I want you to notice that Jesus was the initiator and Thomas was the responder. Jesus calls and Thomas responds. This is specifically stated in multiple places in Scripture that in salvation god initiates and we respond for example in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 it says in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins and then in verse 19 john writes we love because he first loved us god initiates and we respond The second thing I want you to notice about the Lord's call here is that the call to faith is a command. It's a command. Jesus says to Thomas, do not be unbelieving but believing. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And the verb here is an imperative. It is a command. It's a divine command from Jesus to Thomas. Do not be unbelieving but believing. We often talk about the call to salvation as being an invitation, and, and Jesus certainly extends invitations. He says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He invites, he beckons gently and urges people to come. Come all ye who thirst, come and eat of of eat and drink, receive the water of life without cost, as Isaiah says. Yes. The call to salvation is an invitation. But it is more than that. It is a command. It is not just an invitation that you are free to accept or decline. You can't treat the call to salvation like it's an RSVP for a birthday party. Well, you know, I wanna go, I'll go. I don't wanna go, I, I won't. I got some more important things to do. This, yes, is an invitation, but it is also a divine imperative. It is a command. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This divine command is seen in the apostolic preaching of the cross. For example, in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul is preaching to the pagan Athenians He's in Athens and he has just confronted them with their idol worship. In verse 29 he says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So he confronts their entire religious system, their entire re- religious worldview, says that it is wrong. We ought not to think this way. God is not formed by the art and thought of man. It is He's not an image of gold or silver or stone. This is wrong. That's what he says in verse 29. Now listen to what he says in verse 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is commands all people everywhere to repent. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is a divine command. Third, I want you to notice that the call of Christ is an effectual calling. The call of Christ is an effectual calling. Jesus calls Thomas to faith, and Thomas answers the Lord's call. Jesus says at the end of verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing... And in verse 28 it says, Thomas answers and says to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus calls and Thomas answers that call. This is a good example of what theologians call the doctrine of effectual calling. The doctrine of effectual calling simply means that when the good shepherd calls to his sheep, they hear his voice. He knows them, and they respond by following him. You might ask, well, where is the doctrine of effectual calling in Scripture? Well, it's directly on the lips of the Lord in John chapter 10, verses 27. Through 30, Jesus simply says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the doctrine of effectual calling. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and no one can snatch them out of my hand. The power and the efficacy of the call of Christ is seen in this passage and it is seen also throughout the rest of scripture. When Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus and calls out to long dead Lazarus come forth, Lazarus answers, and he comes forth. The call of Christ is efficacious. It produces the result which is intended. Likewise, when Jesus calls to a long dead soul and says, come forth, that dead soul will hear the voice of the shepherd, and they will come forth. And nothing can thwart the sovereign will of God. Nothing can keep the call of Christ from being efficacious, nothing can stop the effectual call of Christ. Not depravity, not doubt, and not the devil. Even the devil himself cannot stop the call of Christ from accomplishing its divinely intended and sovereign purpose. This is not just a New Testament truth, it is revealed to us in the Old Testament. For example, listen as I read to you Isaiah chapter 55 verses six through 12. The call of God goes out. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. Let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. God says, my word, will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I send it. It will accomplish what I desire. The call of God is an effectual calling. It does not return to him void. And this, by the way, is good news. It's good news for the discouraged evangelists. It's good news for the parent of the unbelieving adult child. You can grow discouraged because you, you've kind of shared all the proofs and arguments that you can think of, and the person still doesn't believe. Well, there is hope for that person because when Christ calls them, he calls with an effectual call, a call which overcomes doubt, which overcomes depravity, and overcomes the hold that the devil has on a person. Because the scripture says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but when Christ says let there be light in that soul, there will be light in that soul. The Son of God will dawn like the sun even in the darkest of hearts. So for the discouraged evangelist, the discouraged parent, take heart. The call of God is an effectual calling. This is also good news for those who personally struggle with doubt and unbelief. When Christ calls you, his call comes with the power of God's love, the transforming power of God's love. Doubt had no doubt built strong walls of unbelief around the heart of Thomas. I mean, this is a guy who watched Christ do miracles, give sight to the blind, feed the 5,000, walk on water, raise Lazarus from the dead. He had seen all those things and yet won't believe. Those are some tall and thick walls of doubt. He earned his nickname, Doubting Thomas. What penetrated those walls? Interestingly enough, it was not the massive accumulation of logical arguments or proofs, it was the effectual call of Christ. When Christ looked at him and said, Thomas, do not be unbelieving but believing, the walls of doubt came crashing down. When doubt meets Jesus, Jesus wins. This is why the Apostle Paul could write such words of encouragement to us as we struggle in our faith. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Do you struggle with the weakness of your faith? Well, all of us do. We're all like the man who came up to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are often weak in faith. Jesus would commonly say to the disciples, "O ye of little faith. That's us, that's you, that's me. Listen to what the apostle writes, he says, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to the effectual call of God. It says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the unbreakable and unbroken chain of salvation. Those who are predestined are called with an effectual calling. Those who are called are justified and those who are justified are glorified. And as Jesus has said in the gospels of all those the Father has given me, I haven't lost one. So Paul writes in verse 31, what shall we say to these things, right? If, if this is an unbreakable chain of salvation that begins in the loving heart of God and ends in a heart that loves God, then what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us everything else? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, so who's the one who can can, can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and who was raised and is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes the Son intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ, Paul writes? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It is written, uh, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That chain of salvation is too strong for any created thing to break. Those he predestined, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. So if God is for us, who can be against us, we overwhelmingly conquer in all these things. That's the great hope and the comfort of the believer, and that's what Jesus brings. You see, when doubt comes, Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he confronts and he calls. So in summary, what does doubt do? Well, doubt distances, doubt distrusts, and doubt demands. But when doubt distances, Jesus comes. When doubt distrusts, Jesus confronts. And when doubt demands, Jesus calls. That's what Jesus does. And when doubt meets the deliverer, the deliverer is victorious. Well, we've talked about what doubt does and we've talked about what Jesus does. Next week, we're going to talk about what faith does. Doubt is one of the devil's favorite weapons. But when we raise the shield of faith, which we have been given by God, doubt is rendered powerless. We'll talk about that next week. I wanna close, though, today by reading to you one more time the call of the Savior. This is the Lord's call and the Lord's command to a doubting heart. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Lord, I do pray that any doubting heart heard your voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd. And that they follow you. Lord, you have said they will. You've said my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Lord, we have seen that glorious truth in the life of Thomas. May it be true in each of our lives as well. We pray in Jesus' name.